Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Mattimore Cronin. And I'm Brett Ewer. And today we're discussing the future of the presidency. That means we'll discuss who is likely to win the 2020 election, how the impeachment trial in the Senate is likely to turn out, how a future president should address issues around Iran, China, and election security, and finally, how the presidency itself is likely to evolve in the future. So Brett, to start, let's talk about the Democratic primary field. So since we last spoke, a number of candidates have dropped out. Cory Booker dropped out, Marianne Williamson, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, and Beto. So only six candidates actually qualified for the most recent debate that happened just a few days ago, and those are Warren, Biden, Buttigieg, Sanders, uh, Klobuchar, and Steyer, or Buttigieg, sorry, I always miss, miss, uh, say his name. It's easy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> easy to mispronounce, I mean. Yeah. Right. So Yang did not qualify, uh, which I'm bummed about, but he's, he is still running, and Michael Bloomberg is definitely like playing his own game, which apparently doesn't involve showing up to the debates. So my question for you you know, given everything that's changed since we last spoke, what are your current thoughts on who did best in the most recent debate and who now is best positioned to win the Democratic nomination? You know, I think it's tough to say who really performed best without really considering what the point of the debate was. Um, you know, the point of the debate really was to spice up the campaigns just before uh, the caucuses. You know, we, we I think we have now have three weeks until February 3rd uh, in Iowa when, when the caucuses happen. Uh, and, and for the networks, that really means uh, inducing drama, um, as mm-hmm. well as focusing on some policy issues. But you know, I think it really comes down to who escaped uh, looking the best, or at least avoiding the biggest gaffe. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually, um, you know, I think, and this is, this is not <laughs> what I would hope for, but uh, I think uh, Joe Biden came across um, came across very well, mostly because I think he was given softball questions, and because uh, I think the framing of a lot of the questions uh, was the framing was negative. pretty biased. It sounded, it seemed like, especially yeah. with the the Warren and and Sanders dispute. You know, they like so just a little background, because I agree. Basically, the point right now is how do we stir up drama so that voters can actually decide who to vote for? And most of the area that needs drama stirring up is between Warren and Sanders because they have a very similar base. So now it's like, OK, who's who are you actually going to vote for? Who who do you want as the progressive candidate? And for people that don't know the background. So Warren claims that Sanders said privately, a woman cannot win the presidency. And and Sanders, Bernie, denies saying that. So in the debate, CNN asked a question to Sanders about, you know, basically, is it, you know, did you actually say this or not? He stuck with his original story and said, I did not say that. It's not true. And then they went to Warren and said, okay, we know you said it. We, or we, know, we know Bernie said that. So given that they basically like pretty much sided with her. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is that an effective strategy with Warren? Also, who do you believe and how do you think it's going to affect voter support? Well, you know, I'm going to start by saying that I kind of have my feet in both camps. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I support Bernie um, 
from an electoral position. I used to intern for Senator Warren, and I know you know a lot of her people, and and I think that um, you know overall she would be a great candidate and a great president, policymaker, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to really get to the core of this, we have to look at the original CNN story. It was that the sources were two people who were familiar with the conversation, which happened between Senator Sanders and Warren in 2018, and then two people who were immediately briefed by Senator Warren after the dinner. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, right off the bat, all of the sourcing pretty much comes down to Senator Warren. Mm. And you can say that there's degrees of credibility because there are people who um, have this account directly after it happened, right? Um, but we're still relying on entirely on one person um, and, and their sole account, uh, and then kind of throwing it back on the other person, Senator Sanders, to effectively react against against you know what is mm-hmm. an accusation of sexism, and then say, "Hold on, no, I didn't say that at all." Um, so I think that it's important to look at the, you know, look at the story and actually consider whether the sourcing is right. Again, I'm not a journalist, yeah. but all of us are, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it seems to me like if I had to guess who was telling the truth, it seems likely that Bernie did say something to that effect. But he probably meant it more like, look, in 2016, with the way the country currently stands, it'd be hard for a woman to win the presidency not saying that he wouldn't want a woman to win the presidency or he wouldn't support a woman, but just stating a, a, you know, the, the affairs of what was going on at the time. But it's, it seems like a strategic move by Warren to make this a big play, to basically insinuate, you know, Bernie, he's kind of a sexist, the Bernie bros, they've always been a little, you know, sexist, like video gamers eating Cheetos in their basement. Like, we don't really want that. We want, you know, the nice upstanding truly woke people who are the Warren supporters. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm surprised I'm actually saying this, but I agree with the Washington Post's reporting on <laughs> this. The Washington Post does a lot of good work. I'm mm-hmm. unfairly maligning them, but uh, I'm going to quote them. They say, two people with knowledge of the conversation at the 2018 dinner at Warren's home told the Washington Post that Warren brought up the issue by asking Sanders whether he believed a woman could win. One of the people with knowledge of the conversation said Sanders did not say a woman couldn't win, but rather that Trump would use nefarious tactics against the Democratic nominee. Hmm. So I can see I can really see both sides here. You know, language is ambiguous um, just generally. I won't go off on a tangent on Mm -hmm. that. But um, but, you know, I could see how both interpretations could live on. Uh, I think it was pretty cynically deployed. Uh, by Warren's campaign, which I assume includes people who, you know, generally come from more of the establishment compared to Bernie's campaign. And so there Mm -hmm. is that friction between the two wings of the party. um, And and that information was probably leaked by the more establishment folks. And and it was done in a a way to um, gin up support Mm-hmm. Uh, for a candidate, frankly, who's who's falling in the polls from her peak uh, in the fall of 2019. Right. It might be a way to siphon off some of Bernie's female supporters or female-minded supporters. So it's, it is interesting to see the repercussions of this feud. Some are good, some are bad for both candidates. So, for instance, with Bernie, he raised on that single day of Tuesday when this was all in the news, 
$1.7 million in donations from individual supporters who basically got all riled up about, you know, Warren claiming that Bernie is a liar on national TV. And it already trending on Twitter since Tuesday has been hashtag never Warren, hashtag Warren is a snake, hashtag lying Liz. And this, like, while, yeah, you might see it as good to gin up like a lot of you know, energy for Bernie's base. It's also not a great look for for Bernie to have like his supporters doing vicious attacks like that. And if you look at you know some of the polls that have come out since the debate and since this issue from you know Nate Silver five thirty eight, it looks like people you know really did not. They soured on Sanders. He had a net favorability change of negative three point six. Whereas, you know, Warren had a net favorability change of plus 3.9. So it does seem like the public sentiment is a little bit more on Warren's side, even though the diehard Bernie fans have definitely gotten riled up in support of him around this this uh, issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think however you look at it, um, it's unfortunate because politics is dirty, especially electoral politics and during a primary um, and, and what's so unfortunate is that I feel like this was mostly manufactured, um, in order to split a progressive base that actually agrees on so many things. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you get down to the policy levels, yes, I tend to agree with Bernie because I think, uh, I agree more with his vision and the actual plans and his strategy for kind of coming to the negotiating table asking for more than you would expect to get mm-hmm. um, rather than a kind of technocratic proposal that would work at first implementation but you know I, I don't think I don't think Republican leadership would act in good faith you know with mm-hmm. like Medicare for all I think they you know industry will try to water it down as much as they can right. um, so you know it's unfortunate i think what was really interesting is last night uh once the primetime cycle came up they released the uh oh i saw that yeah the the actual hot mic audio yeah and i think the real winner there is tom steyer Um, (laughs) (laughs) i just wanted to say hi bernie and he's like okay fine (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. man um which you know is a friendlier it, it did seem very strategic like everyone knows that when the debate has just ended. The cameras are still on the candidates. So for Elizabeth Warren to go up to Bernie and say, probably knowing that she's on a hot mic, um, I have it right here. She said, I think you called me a liar on national TV. And Bernie replied, you know, let's not do it right now. If you want to have that discussion, we'll have that discussion. And then Warren said, anytime. And then Sanders said, you called me a liar. You told me, all right, let's not do this now. So it seems clear that Warren was like wanted to make it even bigger news and Sanders was kind of trying to like, no, let's just talk about this like privately. Um, So that kind of shows that this probably came up as a result of a brainstorming session between Warren and her team around an oval table in a conference room. That's what it seems like to me. I could definitely see that. And it's, you know, I always told my clients, um, when I was prepping them for, you know, TV or, or any, you know, mostly TV is, uh, you don't, you do not speak once you've said your piece. And once you've gotten your message out, um, you don't stay outside of that message and that character until you are out the door of the building. Yeah. Um, 
And for a presidential candidate, that extends to you're that way until you're in the car that's taking you to your hotel. Right. Um, I mean, you are always on. That's why it's so exhausting. Um, some people say, you know, you're always on until you get to the elevator. I, <laughs> you know, nowadays it's I think it extends yeah. even more. So I agree with I agree with your assessment there that I think it was, um, you know, in a way calculated. Uh, and, you know, let's let's not uh, let's not let CNN off the hook here. I mean, right, you know, I think right. I think we like to assume in the best of all worlds that media agencies, media outlets um, are always acting in their best or in, in the interest of objectivity. Right. They do have a they do have an incentive to keep their credibility, but also CNN is owned by AT&T and right. AT&T does not stand to benefit from uh, does not stand to benefit from, you know, Sanders certainly not. And Warren right. probably, you know, they stand to benefit from a divided, uh, from the progressive wing of the party being divided. Right. Yeah. Like I saw some of the chirons from CNN that were like, should Bernie have to answer for how he will pay for healthcare? And it's like the way they word questions, it just makes you feel like he's a crazy person that has crazy ideas. What the chiron should say is like, you know, Sanders on how to pay for health care. <laughs> yeah, like... I mean, it, yeah, one of the chirons, I, I took it down, was Sanders' proposals would double federal spending over a decade. How will he avoid bankrupting the country? Right, right. When it's like, okay, yeah. you didn't ask that for any of the questions about our uh, engagements in the Middle East, which have cost us trillions of dollars over the yeah. past 20 years. I mean, any, <laughs> you know, exactly. it's just... So I, it, that actually... Uh, segues to a good point, which is the whole issue with Iran and how the candidates performed relative to that issue. Because I agree with you that I think Biden had a really strong performance. I think Klobuchar had a strong performance. And I think part of the reason why they both had a strong performance is because they were both moderates and they both gave the impression that if they are elected and they're commander in chief, that they will do what's right for the safety of Americans and the safety of the world which may include keeping some troops in strategic areas in Iran, in Iraq, wherever it's needed so we can have some bases to deploy drones and, you know, surveillance and, and have spies and whatever else we need, not necessarily to do like a full-fledged ground attack, but just to have strategic presence. Whereas for Warren and Sanders, both of their answers were basically, we need to take troops right out right away and use diplomacy. And that's great. Like, obviously, that's what we would love to do. But it's hard to have leverage in diplomacy once you've already made it clear that you're going to take troops out. So I'm curious if you have a similar assessment of, of that issue about Iran. Yeah, you know, again, I think it was a question of framing. I think that the people always brought it back to, you know, specifically uh, Biden, Klobuchar and Buttigieg talked about protecting um, you know, citizens, which is obviously important, but also interests. And that's where it gets murky because interests range from exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, we need to have a presence so that we can, um, supply, uh, our allies, um, mm -hmm. you know, so we can have a presence to protect our allies. Um, but then that could also extend to, you know, we need to have a, a geopolitical presence because we have a lot of, commerce in that area and we need to protect, you know, our economic right. empire. And, and 
you know, we as voters need to be informed enough to say, hold on, I, I don't think we should put money towards this specific interest, but we should put it towards this one. And, and it gets caught up in, you know, the necessary confidentiality of national security issues. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Klobuchar and Biden, uh, and to a lesser extent, uh, Buttigieg came mm-hmm. across pretty strongly in that part of the debate. But I think I would chalk a lot of that up to, to the framing right um, of cnn's questioning yeah i did like how Buttigieg set, made it clear like it seems like Buttigieg's whole strategy in this debate was hey i'm the young guy who knows future stuff and all these old folks are just going to lead us down the same path that we've been going down and i thought that's a pretty good strategy and when he talks about war he made it really clear to talk about cybersecurity, election security climate security working with young emerging leaders around the world and he made a pretty good argument for being the young candidate that can make that happen however he has had some trouble in the polls recently where i don't know if you saw the most recent numbers but uh, as according to Real Clear Politics, which tracks you know over time, basically Bloomberg is now rising to surpass Buttigieg for the number four slot, whereas uh, Buttigieg is declining. So and pretty much Biden has been you know fairly steady at the top. Then Sanders and Warren are like neck and neck; they sort of flip back and forth. And then you've got Buttigieg, but he's about to be overtaken by Bloomberg. And then you have Yang and Klobuchar and Steyer who are lower. Um, so I'm curious if you think Buttigieg still has a shot or you think, you know, Twitter mob has already decided they don't like him and it's not so likely that he will be a nominee. I think a way he could survive is if he takes a lot of that Yang energy that you're mm, talking about, like yeah. being young, being able to address things that aren't being addressed on the national stage because the other candidates are older or maybe they just aren't focusing on that. That's not where their head is. Um, you know, like cybersecurity, new leaders, um, taking on those, you know, I don't, I might not necessarily fully agree with them, but the, uh, positions that Yang took that are completely outside of the political norm, like, like UBI, I mean, things like that, which, which, you know, should be worth considering, but, had never been considered. I think that's the only way that Buttigieg really maintains himself. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, you're right. Bloomberg, Bloomberg's in it. I mean, he can self fund. I don't know about you. Anytime I go on YouTube or Twitter, I get blasted. Yeah, by... I see a lot of ads, but the, and... th- the thing with Bloomberg is that I see a lot of ads, but I, if you had to, if you asked me like, what's his message, I couldn't tell you. Like, I have no idea what his tagline is, what his core message is. So it's like a lot of ad spend, but no sticky message. And it's not even just ad spend. I I heard from, and I'll keep my sourcing opaque on this. Um, <laughs> I heard from someone who works for uh, another campaign. Um, if I, yeah, I'll just say another campaign. <laughs> um, he found out what. Uh, Bloomberg state directors get paid state directors, you know, are, are the people that handle um, Well anything within a state so that means, mm. you know, all of the media all of the field organizing the ground game um, all of the activities in a state all of the uh, delegate amassing everything um, 
you know, the, the political maneuvering, uh, those political directors for Mike Bloomberg get paid around 300, uh, to $350,000. Wow. Um, in the world of campaign politics, that is massive. I mean, campaign politics, you know, yeah, yeah. if you're, you know, I've known people that are mid tier for a federal campaign that are working 16 hour days, eating pizza, drinking booze and like sleeping on a cot. <laughs> like yeah. that's the kind of life, you, you know, uh, or Do you sleeping think that in... means he has a better team. No, um, I think it means because a lot of people who go into electoral politics are driven by um, or campaign politics are driven by uh, conviction. Right. I mean, as they should be, I would hope, yeah. um, you know, uh, no, I think he might be able to get, you know, some good people and some better people. But, you know, money is his strength um, and he's he's going to stay in it, especially if someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders got the nomination. Right. He's, if it's not know. a moderate, then he has a better chance than if it is a moderate who has yeah. the other main slot. Yeah. Or, so, so I want to like, we should then talk about how we think the impeachment situation is going to turn out with Trump and all of that. But before we get into that whole area, I'm curious to think about predictions of future scenarios in a mini sense of which candidate, if nominated, would beat Trump or we think would have a likely chance of beating Trump. So we can sort of go down the list and I really, I mean, I have my own thoughts, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts of like, for instance, Biden versus, Biden versus Trump, Warren versus Trump, Sanders versus Trump. Let's start with those three. Do you think any of those, which of those three do you think is most likely to defeat Trump if nominated? You know, I'll start with the person I think would probably be least likely. Uh -huh. um, is Senator Warren. And I say that out of, oh, you know, I, I mean, out of the top tier, right, right. Um, top tier of the, of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, I say that because I, I think that there is overwhelming, you know, just I think people are generally, uh, you know, there's underlying current of sexism. We can't deny that, you know, the people are unused to women leaders. And so they um, unfairly prejudice people, mm -hmm. you know, based off of that. And, and that's not right. Um, but also as someone from, you know, as a fast talker from Massachusetts, you know, snarky <laughs> fat, you know, a, a lot of people across the country don't have that similar affect and right. it can come across, it, it can rub people the wrong way. Trust me, I've rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in my life, <laughs> um, going around the country, you know, that you, there's a certain way of presenting. And while I, you know, I, I support her along with Senator Sanders, I think that, uh, you know, also aside from the biases that people will have against her personally, you know, on a demographic level level, I think generally the vision she presents, um, is not as expansive. I think Bernie would have a better shot based off of the polling I've seen and based off of, um, based off of, I think the expansiveness of his vision, which is that, you know, you aren't, you're, you're, you're not talking about what people deserve or, or what people, uh, you know, a plan to fix something. It's about what people deserve in a society. Hmm. Um, and it's about implementing a moral and ethical vision of what you view society as being and bring that into the political realm. Uh, and I think that that resonates quite a bit, uh, at least with people I've talked to around the country, people really like that and the authenticity. Um, right. 
Yeah. Bernie's a curmudgeon. Um, <laughs> and, and, and even if you disagree with him, people still really respect that. Yeah. Um, with Biden, I think he's got a great shot because he's also, um, you know, he's comfortable. I mean, he represents the establishment, the Obama era. A lot of people were doing, you know, decently or they were recovering during that time from the economic crisis. And, you know, he's kind of like for a lot of people, I think, who don't get involved in the nitty gritty. He is a he's kind of like a bowl of t- like warm tomato soup and a yeah. grilled cheese. Like he, he's comfort food. Yeah. I mean, you know, for a lot of people, they they're so disturbed by what's been going on with with the current president where there's just, you know, a flurry, a media circus every day of corruption um, yeah. and insanity, you know, policymaking by tweet. They just want to go back to something normal. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting your your predictions because they seem like they're fairly in line with how Trump is thinking about the situation, because with the whole Warren versus Sanders debate, um, you know, Trump pretty much sided with with uh Sanders version of events and it seems like he did that because he would sort of rather go up against Warren than go up against Sanders perhaps and he also has made a you know obviously the whole subject of the impeachment is because he wanted interference to basically dig up dirt against Joe Biden because it seems like of all the candidates the one Trump is most worried about is Joe Biden because it's really hard to peg him as this like communist extremist, just given who Joe Biden is and what his positions are. And that's kind of the best strategy the GOP have. So, you know, and, and I don't know if you've been following sort of the, the hacking reporting that the New York Times has done, but essentially the Ukrainian company that Hunter Biden worked for, Joe Biden's son, mm-hmm. recently they found there was a lot of pretty sophisticated phishing activity for those companies. So Hmm. they, these, you know, Fancy Bear, which is the Russian hacking group that is, you know, directly associated with the Kremlin, Fancy Bear set up fake websites for all of these subsidiaries of the Ukrainian oil company. And they used good domains, like dot-com domains that sounded exactly like the real website. And not only that, but they made the website look exactly like the original website and they had login functionality. So they would have people who thought they were going to the normal website enter their login information and they have already hacked into that system. So it's quite likely that just like in 2016 where you know the John Podesta emails got dumped right before the election and definitely influenced the election I don't care what anyone says, like public sentiment in the media was definitely impacted. Yeah. That similar thing could happen right before the 2020 election with a dump of all these emails from like, you know, Hunter Biden, maybe even Joe Biden. And the thing is, it almost doesn't matter what's in the emails. You know, people are going to find something and just the news of, oh, there was some big dump. It makes it seem like there's something nefarious. So if Biden is elected, I agree with you. I think he's probably one of the most likely to defeat Trump, but it's probably going to be quite a battle similar to the, you know, Hillary and Trump battle in 2016. You know, it's fascinating what you, you know, you're describing fishing and I'm sure most of the audience knows this, but I just learned of a recent fishing attempt where um, I don't know, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like Fancy Bear or any, you know, APT. It was a just a some other hacker ring that 
created a complete copy of Google's homepage, but they changed the font on the G's in Google. They changed the font. So instead of the G, you know, instead of the loop on the bottom completely wrapping up to the loop on the top, it was a loop on the bottom with a hanging, um, you know, a a hanging sort of appendage. Um, And that fooled enough people so that they were able to access people's (laughs) Gmail accounts. um, And yeah, and I mean, completely reroute traffic. So it's scary how easy it is. Uh, And I agree with you, you know, the the information manipulation game um, definitely works. But I wanna, I wanna counter by saying, I think it works in situations where you're dealing with people who are running for office and are running, playing a uh, political game. And by that, I mean someone who's trying to optimize just you know exactly where mm-hmm. they're going to get the exact number of votes from. You know We're gonna get 5% in Wisconsin, we're gonna get 4% here, and we're gonna have these margins. If you're walking on that tight, on the you know on tight margins like that, then yeah, you are susceptible to um, to disinformation campaigns that will sway a certain percentage of the public. But why I think personally, why I think Sanders has a has a decent shot is because he is all of his messaging, you know, the political revolution, not me, us, is mm-hmm. all about uh, building a broad grassroots base that stays engaged with policymaking. Uh, that can be called on whenever there is a, uh, you know, a political fight that needs to be fought. Um, and it's based on improving people's day-to-day conditions. You know, right. both of us, and I'm sure a lot of you know, listeners are comfortable in their lives, but there are a lot of people who are living very on the edge, paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. having to go to food banks. And you know, yeah, they... I mean, I, I like Bernie. I consider him an, a living American hero. But at the same time, he is someone who's fairly easy to brand as like a crazy leftist extremist. So I wonder how effective that would be if it did come down to Trump versus Sanders. Whereas if it was someone like Yang, who has a lot of the same messages and same inspiration as Sanders, where, yeah, it's all about the people who have been disenfranchised and how can we make their life better in a real way day to day. But it's not as much about being on the left. It's like, you know, Yang's whole thing is not left, not right forward. So, I mean, my own personal predictions is that I I think the only way Trump would have a chance of being defeated would be if it was against a moderate that's not scary in like a left extreme way. So I think mm-hmm. Biden has a good shot. I think Yang has a good shot. I think Klobuchar maybe, but I don't think she ha- she's inspirational enough. And I, you know, I actually, I, I, I will say, I actually sort of maybe think that Warren has a better shot than, than uh, Bernie, personally. Mm. Um, I guess my issue with you know other than the problems that i've identified with with senator uh warren's campaign in running against trump is that he is a bully i mean he's just one of the worst and i have a feeling that she would respond almost too much in good faith like she would criticize mm-hmm. him on things that he absolutely should be criticized for and are completely valid points that disqualify him from holding anything above, you know, local dog catcher. Maybe not even that. Right. Um, 
but you know i think she plays too much within the bounds of like safe political discourse um so so okay so here's an yeah. example was what uh, what was it two years ago now when she she tried to counter you know all these racist attacks you know the pocahontas thing oh, yeah, yeah. you know all of that terrible instead, miscalculation yeah instead of just saying it's not important. no <laughs> yeah, saying, this isn't important right, right. i'm running on these policies fuck you instead you know yeah i was getting, annoyed that so many times during the debate last time people said well this helps out black and brown people i heard that term so many times and it's like we shouldn't care about like race shouldn't be interesting to us it should be helping out people who are poor and people who need help people who need health care and better income and better benefits but it does seem like at this stage, everyone's like strategically trying to get like very specific, you know, uh, groups of the electorate. And it's a little bit uh, it, it doesn't rub off the right way for me. I think it's I think it's a cynical, uh, you know, approach because it falsely bifurcates, you know, class issues versus racial issues right. when they are entirely, entirely intermeshed. I mean, you can't, you know, think about how much of the working class is black people or brown people. I mean, it, we, you know, go, go back to, you know, full American history. I mean, go back to the Columbian exchange and you're going to find that most of the, uh, you know, history on this continent as it's been recorded, um, you know, by Europeans or, or, you know, otherwise, um, does involve exploitation that involves people's economic means being uh, affected by their skin color and right. by their culture and background. So it's such a cynical play to say, you know, I'm focused on explicitly racial justice without even thinking or even introducing like, well, what does that mean for people's economic situation? Um, mm -hmm. And it brings to mind this chart that I don't know if you follow the, the blog, Wait But Why, but they did an awesome post recently called Political Disney World. And it was basically about like how politics is just this Disney world where you're, character, you're caricaturing like good guys and bad guys. And, and so most people think of it just as a two-dimensional, you have the left and then you have the right and then you have the center. But that's actually a low dimensional way of thinking about it. A better way to think about it is, yeah, you have left and the right on the x-axis, but on the y-axis you have what he calls the psych spectrum, which is how high level are you thinking about it. And the highest level is your motivation is truth and building a more, more perfect nation, no matter what your personal predilections are, like you're going to do whatever is in line with the truth. Whereas on the bottom, it's like all about confirmation bias you know, being, uh, you know, it's like your side versus the others and just winning. And if you look at the curve of how voters tend to behave on different levels of the psychic spectrum, like on the lowest levels where it's all like instinctual tribalism, like I just want to win. I don't even care what, if the facts are true or not. That tends to be like very largely like just people on the very left or very right. But then as you go up higher, it sort of creates like an arch shape where the people on the highest level tend to be a lot more in the middle. You know, you still can have some high level thinkers that are very progressive or very conservative, but more often than not, the highest level thinkers will be somewhere in the middle. So I wonder how that is going to change over time if we think that it's going to become sort of more tribal 
in future elections, or if maybe this is the worst in the U.S., like the most tribal it's, it's going to be, and then it'll just get better from here. I mean, I tend to view things within the context of, you know, how old are our institutions? How, how long has it been since they've been changed? And I, you know, try to view them within the context of generations and how they view their struggle with each other, um, along with their struggle with institutions created by other generations. And that's just one dimension, but I, I tend to, to focus on that a lot. And I think that since the post-war, uh, since World War II, you know, the last time we had a, a complete unification of society behind a cataclysmic global threat, you know, the beginning of the atomic age, that kind of thing. You have the 50s and the early 60s where you have pretty much, you know, a general sense of social harmony and then people identify horrible injustices with it, you know, whether that's treatment of women or of racial and ethnic minorities leading to the civil rights movement and, you know, all of that. And then you have, a, you know, a general um, deconstruction of those institutions, like what happened in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And then, you know, now we're in a point where we've come to kind of two battling ends that are looking for a different moral and political vision for what society should be. And that's going to mm -hmm. be reflected in our institutions. And I think you do see that on the far right. You know, you have people that are like, you know, ethno state wackos, right. you know, people who are completely nuts. Then I think you have people on the, you know, the far left um, who I tend to sympathize with, obviously, you know, a lot more. Um, you know, I think it's I think we're coming to a kind of a fever pitch. Mm -hmm. um, where something, you know, one so of those extremes by, by is going to win. By fever pitch, you think it's going to get more extreme from here or less extreme? I think it will probably get, uh, you know, it's, it's got to come to a climax at some point, and mm -hmm. then it will become less extreme because we will have built a foundation of things that we just accept as being, um, you know, what we should be doing. So, for example, I'll tell you on the left, I think, one of the things that I would hope that would become a uh, just a fundamental tenet of society, something that just everyone basically agrees on is, oh, crap, like our <laughs> we're we're at serious risk of of, of climate change. Mm -hmm. And that affects our day to day lives and how we consume and how we you know, interact with the, the world and ecology. And we need to be very careful with what we do. You know, I, right. I would assume that right. that would be. A basic building block, um, and that's just one example. Another could be healthcare. Like, how do we approach people having issues with health? How do we, you know, will we ever decouple a person's productivity and work uh, from the things that they get in terms of food and shelter and uh, and healthcare? You know, things like that. Will we move toward the full social democracy? Right. Uh, but yeah, sorry, that was, that was a bit of a tangent. No, no, that's <laughs> but, uh, good. Yeah, I, well, I want to get into the future scenario of really how we think not only the presidency, but how America is likely to change in the coming few elections. Because I agree, it seems like we're getting to this very, um, you know, fervent period where everyone's just fired up on both sides. And it seems like it will reach a climax. It doesn't feel like it's reached its supreme level of divisiveness. But once that happens, it does seem like, you know, whether it's a recession or whether some major climate catastrophe happens 
or whether there's a you know hacking in our election that freaks everyone out or something may happen that would bring us together again. But before we get into just outlining what we think the future scenarios are likely to be, let's just briefly talk about the impeachment trial because this is something that is just beginning today in the Senate. And I'm curious to you, I have a few questions for you. One is, do you think they're going to end up allowing witnesses? I'm also curious if you think the impeachment trial will end up helping or hurting Trump politically. And if you think that any GOP members will end up defecting in the end. Well, um, so you know, first I think on the witnesses, I guess. Yeah. Witnesses, I, I don't think there will be any witnesses. I think what it's going to come down to is all of these little procedural questions, which are very important. Don't get me wrong. These little procedural questions have an impact on how the later questions are examined and answered. Um, but, you know, I don't think witnesses will be allowed. Uh, I think what will happen is um, it, it will go to the Senate as it has. And Mitch McConnell will act as a lightning rod for people's complaints about the procedures. Democrats will say, this is how it's always been done. There's always been witnesses. He will say, we're in extraordinary times or something or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the media won't hold him accountable. His voters won't because there's a significant portion of the country that already views the impeachment as some sort of a sham. Um, And then there will be tight votes where the moderates, you know, Senator Collins, Senator Murkowski, um, you know, those two, you know, they're the only ones I can think of right now. I shouldn't unfairly malign just them. There are other moderate Democrat Mm -hmm. or uh, Republican senators. They will kind of hem and haw about, you know, whether whether they should or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I always I always view former Senator Jeff Flake as like the perfect archetype for this. He was always Mm -hmm. hemming and hawing and so concerned and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you know, the other one is uh, Mitt Romney. Yeah, Um, I can pick on him. He's you know, he's a good Massachusetts guy. Um, (laughs) He you know, they'll hem and haw about, you know, well, you know, we should stick to procedures and tradition on all this. I'm gravely concerned, Mm -hmm. but they'll end up voting with the party. They'll fall in love. Although. It does seem like since you just need a simple majority for a lot of these votes with impeachments, rather than normally you have the tiebreaker with the VP, um, it does seem like we would only need a few GOP members, to like three of them, I think, to side with Democrats in order for witnesses to be allowed. So it's, it seems to me, I seem maybe a little bit more optimistic that they will allow witnesses, not saying that that'll necessarily change much as far as the end outcome. But I, I'm also curious if you think, so a lot of people, political experts have said, oh my God, impeaching Trump is the worst thing you can do because it's just going to energize his base. It's going to make everyone fired up. It's going to make people think that this was all a sham and a witch hunt to begin with. But then you have other people, you know, like the Nancy Pelosi's that think, you know, not only is this something that must be done ethically and constitutionally, but this is actually a good strategy because we're bringing to light information that can sway voters um, to make a more informed decision. So I'm curious which of those opinions are most closely resemble your own. Yeah, I, I, I don't think... You know, I think it was largely a mistake in terms of timing 
just how they went through the impeachment. I think it will probably energize his base. And, and the, you know, the timing issue is that it's it's being rushed through right now. I mean, it's going to start what uh, Chief Justice Roberts is going to be sworn in this coming Tuesday. So that'll be the 21st of January 2020. Uh, and then I bet the trial will last um, for maybe two weeks, three weeks. I mean, it's actually masterfully done what I think what what Senator McConnell has done is that he's going to be dragging away um, both Senator Warren, Senator Sanders and Senator Klobuchar from campaigning in Iowa um, to go to this trial and, <laughs> you know, to preside over the evidence when, you know, you aren't getting any witnesses, really. So it's like, what's the whole point? But mm -hmm. but even more, um, what I think is, is interesting is that they aren't allowing the Senate is not allowing media to be freely roaming. Oh, wow. Uh, the Capitol during this time. This is a huge problem. Their proposal is that the media must be uh, in. I think it's on the second floor of the Senate uh, chamber. Um, they have to be, you know, stuck in that gallery. They can't, you know, usually media is freely roaming around, uh, you know, the cloakroom area, you know, all around the the um, just the hallways around the chamber. Right, I mean, it's right. a great place to catch a senator. It's a great place, um, you know, to, to get a candid take. Uh, but no, I mean, what Senator McConnell is doing is he's insulating his people so that they can uh, vote party line so that they don't have to deal with you know, Pressure. potentially, yeah, and not even gotcha questions, <laughs> like Just very like simple questions, straightforward questions, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and and I think Republican senators are um, acting hostile already. I just saw a video where um, Manu Raju, the the CNN correspondent, asked Senator McSally from Arizona. He asked her a question, and it wasn't a particular. I don't remember the question, but it wasn't a particularly pointed one. Uh, and she just said, you're a liberal hack, <laughs> like go away, <laughs> you're a hack. Um, so, you know, I think it's being carefully constructed so that the procedures won't matter. It'll be rushed through and then it will be rushed through in enough time so that it will, um, kind of fizzle out. And then president Trump can say, I was acquitted. doesn't right, matter. Right. You know, none of this matters. Um, I am you know, incredibly yeah, cynical yeah. about the whole process. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to then get into the future scenarios. So we've sort of laid the groundwork. So let's take a quick break and then let's go into the best case scenario first. All right. So Brett, what is the best case scenario for the future of the presidency? Best case scenario. You know, as I see it, the the best case, at least for you know this cycle and for the presidency going forward, uh, the institution is um, I would like for Senator Sanders to win unequivocally. Uh, you know, landslide would be great, but I'll take anything. Uh, and then immediate abolition of the Electoral College. That's an entire other conversation. Mm, yeah. um, but I would like for him to win on grand policy proposals that then probably because of politics will get watered down a little bit by the power of industry, um, the health insurance industry foremost. And what will happen there is that um, 
we will have a pretty strong gain on moral issues like providing health care to everyone and, and housing for everyone. Um, there will be pretty strong gains that affect people's uh, material lives day to day. And hopefully that makes people more engaged uh, so that they are able, so that they aren't working three jobs to support a family and that they actually are able to get involved in their communities and affect other political decisions down the chain. So that means state politics, state legislators, uh, legislatures, um, ballot initiatives, all those things, more civic engagement. That would that would definitely be the best possible situation. And then I hope that in terms of the uh, in terms of the office, what I would hope happens to the presidency is that we seriously examine um, given given the expansion of the administrative state and given how seemingly easy it was for Donald Trump, a game show host to become president. I mean, let's not mince words. He was a game show host. He, he became president because he played because he recognized that politics was a reality TV show and he played it really well. Yeah. Yeah, He hacked the system. I mean, um, he, our hope is that, or my hope is that, uh, people recognize that, you know, it is the system is hackable and that it might be dangerous to give so much power to the executive without there being uh, the other branches of government co-equal exerting against that other power. Even if you're part of the same party, if you're the leader of the Senate and you're the same party as the president, you cannot just sign off on everything. I, I would hope that there would be more uh, import and prestige with the other co-equal branches. And I would hope mm-hmm. that they would also... Uh, execute their authority with as just just as much certainty as the president uh, executes, you know, initiatives on on his authority. Or Definitely, authority. yeah. I have a lot of the same sentiments, especially around democracy and how can we strengthen democracy rather than weaken democracy. And like you said, by abolishing the electoral college, we move towards a system where we're doing more what's in line with the actual number of Americans, not the number of counties in the U.S. Like, I, I, saw that, I think I <laughs> tweeted this on my own Twitter, but it was like, here are all the states that have a less population than Long Beach. And people in L.A., like, like Long Beach, a lot of people who live there say, oh, yeah, I live in like outside of L.A. or like in L.A. But no, no, no. Long Beach on its own is bigger, has more people than like almost half of the states in the US. And it's just incredible when you see the numbers of how hackable the system is, because all you need is to have the right states with a relatively small number of people who all think in a fairly similar sort of way in order to get power. And if you can hack the media as well, like, I don't care what you think about Trump, he's brilliant in that he hacked the media and he hacked the system, and he knew what it takes to get enough airtime, and he's willing to say whatever's on his mind, whereas most candidates are afraid to misspeak you know, one single word. So my best case scenario is that I, I think, you know, I would obviously like certain candidates to win more, like Yang is, is number one on the list for me, but I think someone like Yang or Biden would be most likely not only to defeat Trump, because they're more nonpartisan, but also to help heal the divide where it's not as much about 
politics. It's more about what's best for America. So my ideal scenario would be, let's say, and it's probably very unlikely that Yang would win. So let's say Biden wins. Um, the you know the hack and the email dump don't really work against him. He still ends up winning strong enough that it's hard to ca- call the election into question. Like if it's anything close, there's always going to be the question of like, well, is it is it legitimate? Is it not a legitimate election? But if people think it's legitimate, I actually think that you know Trump losing in the election would be the best outcome. The second best would be for Trump if he resigned with some sort of some sort of dignity so that his supporters can maintain some sort of dignity. I think Safe the, face. exactly. I think the worst would be if it got ugly, like if I mean, if Trump got imprisoned, which he may deserve to be imprisoned, but I think it'll be really bad for just the political divisiveness of the country. And it would obviously also be bad if he Trump like you know, was a victor and then started his own like media conglomeration and just became like a powerhouse for all future elections. But, you know, since this is the best case scenario, I think beyond just our current presidency, the presidency itself, the office of the presidency should be more co-equal with the other branches of government. It should always move towards more democracy rather than less democracy. It should really make important the case of securing our elections and confidence in the outcome of our elections and we should be leading the world in a moral sense just the way that you know during world war ii like you said america had this sense of we would always do what's right even if it's not in the best interests of of ourselves like we would take wounded soldiers from the enemy and use american doctors to bring them back to life not because it's good for America, but because that's what America does. And we've lost that in the world. And that's our most powerful asset. Like you can kill every American soldier. But if that idealism still exists about doing what's right, because it's right, then America will live on. But if America degrades, then we're going to be more vulnerable than ever. Could I add something to support your point, which is that too many policy ideas are based off of a sort of tit for tat approach or like a transactional approach when really it should be about what do we as a society want to do. Mm-hmm. So an example of this would be like, without going on too much of a tangent, uh, the death penalty. A lot of people say, well, yeah, you know, we should keep it as an option because, you know, there are some crimes which are just so beyond the pale that we, you know, it stokes our, you know, it, it works our vengeance muscle or whatever. Right. But, you know, I view the opposition to it regardless of, you know, obviously it doesn't work. There's the possibility that you kill someone who's innocent, which is, you know, a sin for any civilized society. It's more, it's less about those issues. And it's more about just, no, we don't want to live in a society which sanctions state murder. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's about what we want the world to be like. And I know that sounds corny, but maybe it's time for people to be corny and less, you know, ironic and cynical and more actually active in making the world better. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. So what do you think is the worst case scenario for the future of the presidency? Worst case scenario. All right. This is, Hear me out. This might this might seem harebrained, but what I think is going to happen in the worst case is that you have a convention, 
a democratic convention that is brokered. And it's brokered to support someone who is a compromised candidate between the progressive left and the and the you know establishment centrists in the Democratic Party. And they choose someone who might not be the best choice, but because there's such a strong rift, maybe not the best campaigner or whatever, but because there's such a strong rift, they need to patch things up. And then that person, uh, you know, runs, runs in the general. Mike Bloomberg stays in the race because he's mm. not satisfied because he wants a centrist establishment person. And then President Trump wins. And the way I could see that playing out is very similar to what happened in Maine for their governor's election, gubernatorial election in 2010 and 2014. There was a... Uh, uh, there was an independent candidate who got about 38% or something or 35. There's a democratic candidate who also got, you know, somewhere in the mid to low 30s and then there was a Republican candidate Paul LePage who became governor who is a who is was and probably forever will be a horse's ass. Um, I mean the guy's a complete tool. Uh, and he won twice because because of this, you know, three-way split. It might work out differently on the federal level because of how the electoral college works and how the house you know, how the House might step in if no one wins the college outright and all of that. But that is my worry is that the opposition to Trump is split because um, potentially because one billionaire <laughs> decides that he doesn't like, you know, he mm -hmm. takes his ball and goes home. Um, so that's the worst case, as I see it. And then Trump becomes president again. He views it as, you know, he views it as his mandate, even when he doesn't have one. We continue you know, an even worse slide into losing global credibility, having climate change get worse, um, mm. having domestic politics continue to be a complete and utter shit show uh, with very little getting done when now is the time for things to get done. Um, and in terms of what that means for, uh, you know, the presidency as an office, I worry that the longer that Donald Trump stays in office, the more that we normalize sort of unaccountable behavior, um, maybe not dictatorial, but I mean, the administrative state is pretty powerful. And mm -hmm. the longer he is there and the longer his political appointees remain at agencies and departments, the longer um, they can set norms. And that's a little scary because one, I disagree with just the Republican Party in general and their, their platform. But two, Donald Trump is the fringe of the Republican Party. I mean, he's a he's a wacko. Uh, so, you know, that that worries me um, pretty much staying the course worries me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly concerned when it comes to this. And I agree with your assessment about what the worst lead up would be where there's a brokered convention and then there's a split decision and there's the Democratic Party is not consolidated in its support for one candidate. So I'm not going to dispute that. I I am also concerned about how the system may become increasingly even more gameable than it has been in the past, mm. where we're seeing, you know, there's already the Republican-controlled Senate, given the way that, you know, gerrymandering and the electorate are composed. But there could also be a situation where we could have a stacked Republican Supreme Court in the very near future, um, especially with, you know, RBG's health issues. And that would be you know, troublesome to then have essentially all branches of the government behind someone who's, you know, clearly has, does not have the same sort of values that the founders had in mind. 
And although one thing I think that's even scarier is the hackability of the election from outside interference. And I'm concerned that right now, a lot of the infrastructure, especially on these state levels, is so bad and so easy to manipulate. And we've had all these issues that aren't even necessarily someone hacking the system, but just the system not working because it was designed in the 80s on like on like Microsoft Word or Minecraft or something. It's like just a horrible <laughs> system. And I worry that if if something happens where the elect the results of the election are called into question and people lose confidence that the results are actually what people voted that could trigger a loss of confidence that if that combined with a recession and we are overdue for a recession i mean if you look at like the stock market like every crash there's like a big crash right around the dot com. There's a big crash right around 2008. There's t typically a recession every 10 years. It's now been many, you know, more than 10 years since the 2008 crash. Stock markets at an all-time high. We've been printing more money than ever. And aside from like the mortgage subprime crisis that happened in 2008, that's still an issue. It's not like they really, you know, started performing better since then. But the even bigger issue is the subprime student loan crisis which a lot of people aren't going to be able to pay their loans. And that's the biggest asset the government has on top of how the deficit has been building tremendously, debt has been building. So part of my concern is that all of these forces may coalesce into a systems collapse. And I'm not saying this is likely the most likely case, but if since we're in the worst case, my worst case is that the lack of confidence, the stock market, bad practices with finance and real estate and the dollar, all of these result in a systems collapse that makes America no longer a real leader in the world. And that creates a vacuum where China and, and, and Russia and other you know big actors can sort of fill in that, that void. And so I think like as far as the presidency is concerned, I think if it just becomes more and more powerful and it becomes more like a dictatorship or like, a, you know, like what the founders tried to get away from, like being a king, um, you know, there was I forget who quoted this, but someone said, well, if we're not going to allow witnesses in the Senate trial, we may as well just give Trump us a crown and a scepter because we're essentially not actually giving a real trial which is what our, you know, it was in the Constitution. And so that's my big concern is that the presidency essentially transforms into a dictatorship that then sort of colludes with the other branches of government and it results in a systems collapse that then allows China to fill in the void. Could I, you know, I agree with you and I want to make some cosmetic suggestions to that sure, idea, sure. which is, you know, I'm always loath to, to, make comparisons to Rome or any of that because it's it's hacky and overdone. But I think in this instance, you can make a valid comparison between the role of the president in relation to a legislature or in relation to the Senate in particular um, with the Roman principate uh, uh, era, principate era, um, the era between, you know, Augustus and uh, and and what I think Nero or actually no, I mean, extending you know, into what I think 150 AD or something like that before the dominate. The difference here is so so the the characterization here is that 
you have a an executive, the emperor or the president, who is the real power behind everything. I mean, they you know they run the military. They have pretty much everyone in their pocket. They are they are the power, mm-hmm. but they're referred to as um, princeps, you know, the, which is the first among equals. They're right. like the chief, so they're considered, you know, they're given. You know, nominally, they have their own office and they are subject to checks and balances and all of these controls. But in terms of norms and customs, people start to just defer to the executive and people in the Senate forget that they Senate and other legislative bodies and independent entities, you know, states Mm -hmm. um, forget that they also have their own duties to fulfill and they just start deferring because politics has become national and is no longer uh, so local. Um, so, you know, I view that as being a potential, you know, I think it's in line with what you're saying. I mean, maybe not strictly a dictatorship. Um, but you know, I view that as being somewhere on the road to a dictatorship is where people are like Russia, where they still have elections, but they're kind of sham elections and it's, they just like switch between Putin and one of his stodgies. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you check off the necessary procedural boxes so that you create different offices for people to inhabit while they, you know, act as a gray eminence and actually control things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's, that's pretty concerning. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's move down now to the most likely scenario. What do you think is the most likely scenario for the future of the presidency? Most likely scenario. So for the election, I think what's going to happen is a centrist, probably Biden, um, will win in a brokered election. And I think what's going to happen is Senator Warren and Senator Sanders have oodles of money. I mean, they have, they're, they're doing really well in terms of money. They have enough and they have their own infrastructure, both of them, to last a fairly long time through the primaries. And they're going to rack up a lot of delegates. And what's going to happen, I think, is that it's they're going to get to the convention and no one's going to have enough delegates to win on the first round. Um, And what will happen there is whoever's ahead, if they're smart, will try to secure those delegates before the their um, opponents or colleagues delegates before that first round of voting so that they actually can clinch the nomination on that Mm. first round. Um, so, you know, there's got to be smart backroom deals going on or what will happen is the first round of voting will lapse. No one will get enough to secure the nomination, at which point super delegates come into play. Um, and they will probably vote for the establishment candidate that will leave the left pretty pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be a replay, I think, to some degree of the, of the 2016 election where there's, People don't feel like there was a fair primary right. process, the like they didn't in. have a voice. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then and then people will still campaign for the Democratic candidate, but uh, you know there will be um, misinformation campaigns from foreign actors. Um, there will be campaigning that is probably potentially lukewarm. I mean, you know, not presenting a grand vision, and I think Trump would probably. He will probably get reelected if that's the case. Um, I mean, I, I hope not, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's looking like that would be the case if if there is a brokered convention and if there's still that rift and tension. Um, you know, despite the best efforts by 
you know, everyone in the Democratic Party to campaign for their lives. Right, right. I think, you know, I think I think that's that's what will happen. Um, and then how will the presidency evolve once Trump is reelected in that scenario? Man, beats me. <laughs> no, um, no, I think we're in for another four years of madness. And it's four years that we really don't have. I mean, yeah. there's only so much time. You know, if you thought President Bush, you know, W. Bush burned up a lot of our capital on the world stage with our allies and with other nations, Donald Trump burns it yeah. at a waste. Yeah. And that's well, not even taking into account the issue of climate change, which mm-hmm. seems like the projections keep getting worse and worse. And the entitlements. Apparently, I just heard that by 2025, that's when the money is going to run out for all the government pensions at the same time that baby boomers are living longer, you know, there's underfunding, more deficits. So I've, I've actually read, I've actually read it's 2030 to 2033. And, and that's actually not too hard of a thing to solve. I know that sounds crazy, but it's actually easier to solve. The problem with a lot of social security and and the entitlements is that, you know, the the projection is that we'll get to 70% payout. You know, the number of people in the system paying in will only match 70% of the mm-hmm. uh, payouts. So maybe there are some cuts. That wouldn't be great. But you can solve that, you know, without cuts or without means testing or without raising the age for entitlements. Um, the way you could solve that is by simply raising the, you know, right now, people, I believe it's people who earn more than $130,000 a year don't pay uh, FICA taxes. So that's like, that's like your Medicare and Social Security taxes. Mm-hmm. You know the the seven and a half percent that you cover and the other seven and a half percent that your employer covers. That, why is there a cap? Right, <laughs> like, right. That makes no sense. I didn't realize that. If the entire idea between behind Social Security and Medicare is that these are just universal programs to ensure Social Security, right. It, it beggars belief that we say, but you know, once you earn more than 130 K or whatever, then yeah, you're good. You sign off on that. It's like, no, I mean, this is a, it's a universal program. There should be universal payment into it. No matter your income, the cap seems weird and getting rid of the cap would go a long way toward resolving that issue. Yeah. So yeah, sorry. It was a bit of a long, no, no, that's good, but it's, it's like, the solution, I guess the point, the larger point here is that there are solutions out there. It's just that the political will to actually enact mm-hmm. them doesn't exist um, or is stymied by the way our system is set up. Right. Yeah. And I know that there have been a lot of there have been a lot of bills proposed for pension reform, entitlement reform, but they never pass because it's never popular among voters. So I think what you're suggesting is most likely to be the most popular path forward because it's just on the people who are making more money, but it still may not be so easy to pass um, just because of the subject matter is, you know, rock, rock hot. Um, But yeah, I guess for my most likely scenario, it really is in the middle of the best and the worst. So if the best is, you know, Trump gets defeated it's just some blip in the history books of, oh, those crazy Trump years, and we study it with fascination, but it's more normalcy from here on out. That is obviously great, but it doesn't seem realistic. And the worst case also, 
where you know Trump consolidates all power and it essentially moves more towards a principate, like you were saying, that also maybe seems a little more likely than the best case, to be honest, but it still is not super likely. There's always a reactionary force, like for every yin, there's a yang. So for my most likely, I agree with you that I think it's most likely that Biden will win the nomination, but it's not going to be everyone unified behind him. It will be somewhat split. I am going to be more optimistic and say, I actually think Biden, if nominated, will beat Trump. And I think that there are going to be a few more twists and turns with the Senate trial than maybe than maybe we're expecting. Like, I think I'm a little more optimistic that maybe witnesses will be called and it may damage Trump somewhat. I think it'll damage him more if he's against a moderate like Biden than if he's against like if it's like Warren or Bernie. I think it will actually I agree it'll energize his base more so than damage his base. But I think basically once Biden defeats Trump, there is going to be the results of the election called into question and that's going to be painful. And what's going to follow is an era of a lot of divisiveness continued and it's going to take time to heal the divide, Biden may not be able to get much done because there is still so much divisiveness and because the the Trump supporting faction of the of Congress and just the system will still be be present enough um, and the media will still be present enough to you know prevent the major changes that need to be made. And we may it may not be until the next election, which if Biden's elected, he probably I mean, who knows, but he may not even run for the next election. I don't foresee us really sort of healing the divide until that next election in 2024. And by that time, I actually feel it is more likely than not that in the next 10 years, there is a recession. Even in the next eight years, um, there is a recession. And if there is a major recession, it could either go the way of an opportunity for you know Trump and the Republicans to secure even more power, right? Mm. Or it could also be the other way where it's like people sort of realize that this strategy is no longer working. We need to really do something that helps the people, whether it's UBI or healthcare or universal college care or something like that. And it kind of reminds me of a quote, which is that things are gonna change whether they happen before or after the revolution. I think it's I think it's worth pointing out that after 2008, you know, there was a recovery and there was a stimulus and and President Obama tried to act in good faith. The Republicans only wanted a stimulus if there was a bunch of tax cuts on it. Um, and they didn't even want the stimulus to be that big. A lot of people didn't recover and were arguably a lot of people live as though they already are in a recession. And I think that's what led to people just saying, fuck it, I'll vote for Donald Trump. Exactly. Like, people don't, you know, and 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 it's got to get to, you know, unfortunately, I think it will get to a point where enough people are materially disadvantaged enough to say, hold on, the way we're doing this, the way we structure our political economy, I mean, just the way that the way that government interacts with the private sector and the way that private sector interacts with the public and the public interacts with government, it's not yeah. working. It's there's got to something's got to give. Yeah, uh, I mean, we we talked about in the future of wealth how every time there's a recession, the income gap and the wealth gap widens. 
because all the rich people can buy you know assets that are cheap and build on their mm-hmm. wealth whereas people who are already struggling financially they have they're the ones who are going to you know go into bankruptcy court or foreclose their house or so it is going to get a lot worse if there's a recession the question is whether the blame game of like blaming immigrants is still going to play or if people are going to realize oh no it actually kind of is you know wall streets and crony capitalism and and uh you know basically taking the dollar off the gold standard and printing tons of money and not caring about paying our debts and mm-hmm. just this whole inflationary you know house of cards so i'm i'm not totally certain what that will be but it seems like maybe i'm too optimistic but it feels like the same trick can't work twice especially if it's worse this time around and people will start to wake up. They, yeah, I think that's for certain. And I think as things get more uncertain in terms of like our basic weather, I mean, it's I'm in DC right now and it's January and it's like 55 degrees. That's, wow. that's not normal. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not normal for there to be a 70 degree day in New York. Like there was a week ago. Um, when enough of people's day to day lives become impacted, uh, then yeah, things change and let's hope it's for the better and not for the worse. And you know, you got to work for the better and not for the worse. Right? right. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you, Brett, for joining. It's a great discussion as always. Yeah, as always. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners. This has been the future of the presidency and we'll see you next time. What will inevitably happen. The past, the present, the future.